Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament this morning to the book of 1 Samuel, the text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Uh, Father, I know that man is weak and you are strong. Lord, I know that uh, I'm in need of your help. I know the hearers are in need of your help uh, to hear your word. God, help our hearts rejoice in your unfolding story of your glory and your salvation. God, I pray that you might please you to call a dead heart to life this morning, someone who has never trusted but sees the glory of your word and your promises and your Redeemer that they might trust in you. God, I pray you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're embarking on a long sermon series that will almost assuredly take more than a year. Uh, we're starting in the book of 1 Samuel, and we might have a few breaks in there. That might seem like a long time to you. And someone might object and say, why spend so much time in the Old Testament? To which I would say, I've preached for four years so far from the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit's just knocking on my heart to show the glory of Christ from the Old Testament as well. 
And the reason why it doesn't bother me one bit to spend this time in First and Second Samuel is because of the text that Scott read for us when we were singing. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they're claiming that they know God, that Abraham is theirs, that Moses is theirs, and that Jesus is some imposter. And Jesus says this about them in John 5.39. He says, you search the scriptures. This is the Old Testament. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So I want to preach First Samuel because I want to preach Christ. The Old Testament is screaming Christ, holding forth Christ. I don't know what your relationship with the Old Testament has been. I don't know how well you have a grasp on God's weaving hand as he works out salvation history. This morning, what we're going to do, if you could picture it this way, here's the goal of the sermon. It's an introduction. We're going to start in, obviously, verse 1 of 1 Samuel next week. But if you could think of it this way, if you could think of someone skipping a rock on the water, and the first skip is at creation, and then you have other skips that are very important as salvation history plays out, we're going to look at some of these skips, and we're going to look at the rock kerplunk in the first Samuel, I want, I want to bring you through all these skips and land us in the context of this book. If we just start reading verse 1 and we don't understand what has happened up to this point, we will miss a rich, the rich fullness of where we're at in redemptive history. And what skips are coming after. So hopefully you received one of these. I just uh, encourage you to keep this in your Bible. Have these basic categories in your mind. And so for the sermon, I could have organized it like you have on this sheet of paper, the patriarchs, the exodus the conquest and settlement, the United Kingdom, which is where First and Second Samuel falls. So if you can, as you're looking at that sheet, if you can picture, that's where we're at in redemptive history. But rather than have these main categories as the skips we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at people. We're going to start with Adam, and then we're going to go to Noah, and Abraham, and we're, going to do, we're just going to follow these, and we're not going to spend a ton of time, but I want you to see the glory of God in His Word. The Bible is an absolutely amazing book of revelation that God has given us. Imagine this. God has used over 40 
human beings, in Holy Spirit-inspired authors using their own personality and their own time to record His words. Over a span of 1,500 years, over three different languages, this isn't three guys saying, let's come up with a story and let's write it over a course of 40 years. These are 40 different men led by the Holy Spirit showing God's weaving hand all the way through history from creation to the very end. And it's absolutely marvelous. And my prayer is, is you get a glimpse of it if you haven't already that you understand what your old testament is and that it's not random stories thrown together the bible is not mainly god's manual on life the bible is mainly the glory of god on display as he reveals himself in history It's a story. And throughout this Bible, you have different genres of literature. You have law. You have history, historical narrative. You have wisdom literature. You have poetry. You have the Gospels. You have the epistles, these letters written to churches. You have prophecy. You have apocalyptic literature and God in all his wisdom puts this together and reveals himself to his creation. And so in summary fashion, let's start with Adam. Everything begins in a garden. In Genesis 1.26, we read this. And this is on the sixth day. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let's just stop. This creator God is a trinity God. He's not just creator That would feel kind of cold, but there's an us and an our, and there's one image. So right away in Genesis 1, we just don't have some cold creator God. We have an us and an our that's a one God, and he's creating man in our image, he says. And so you have family at the very beginning, a relational God after our likeness. And then he says this, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then in chapter two, verse 15, we read the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God creates man to image him. He creates a garden. He creates an earth. 
He says, you be my vice regents, my little kings to represent the big king. You rule over the animals. You make dominion. He put him in a garden. He told them to work and keep the ground. All to image who God is. And so we have Adam, this character that's going to image God. But we know how the story goes. Man falls. And he becomes more like the serpent, imaging the serpent, than God the Father. Rather than follow God's commands, he decides to go on his own and wants to usurp God, become like God himself in a way where he can reject God. And, you, and you're probably familiar with that. And then we get this hint of promise, though. Adam fails. This man that looks like he's going to do it, he fails. But as God curses the earth and the woman and the man and the ground, he curses the serpent. But in this curse, there's a hint of a promise that makes us look forward in hope. In Genesis 3.15, as he's cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And in all that cursing, there's hope. Because what did God tell Adam? He said, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And they ought to be expecting dead. But he says, her offspring, hey Satan, her offspring is going to crush your head. And in pain, you're going to bring forth children. There is a curse in the pain of childbirth. But do you see the promise? She is going to give birth. She's not going to die immediately. And this serpent will be destroyed. And so you have the skip of Adam. But what we find out is the man does die. He doesn't die immediately, but he dies. You read the genealogies in Genesis 5. We read things like this. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And he died, and his sons died, and his sons died. And in Genesis 5.24, we read this interesting change where it says Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. There's one man that's taken that seems different and it says he walked with God. Remember that. 
Because then we read Genesis 6, find out the whole earth is corrupt to a sin. This whole thing has gone wrong, but there is a promise shooting through all this sin. And we read this in Genesis 6, 9. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And right here we might say, well, this is it. He's a righteous man. He's blameless in his generation. He walked with God. This might be the Enoch-like one who defeats death. Maybe this is how God is going to bring salvation to the world. In Genesis 9-7, after he destroys all flesh, except for Noah and his family, we think now there's a fresh start. Now this is going to be better. He says in Genesis 9-7, and you'll be fruitful and multiply and increase on the earth and multiply in it. It seems like there's a new Adam who's given a similar command to be fruitful and multiply. And then we read in verse 20 of Genesis 9, that after Noah got off the ark, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He seems like a new Adam in a new garden, planting a vineyard. We have like a recreation Similar language, but then we read this in verse 21. He drank of the wine. So he planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So from the fruit of this vineyard, he drinks, he gets drunk, and it's like another fall. And there's more cursing. He drank wine. He became drunk. He laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it both on their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And you get more cursing. But there's promises to the other sons. And we see real quickly, just... Two chapters later, we're at the Tower of Babel. Man is already rebelling against God's word of being fruitful and multiply and spread out on the earth. They stay in one place, and it's as if they're saying, God will never flood us again. We'll build a tower so big, he can't do anything to us. Man still rebels, and Noah, who seems like he's going to do it, doesn't. But there's pointing forward to a blessing still. 
And then the next major character is Abraham. And the promise made to Abraham, Genesis 12, 2. God says to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, surely this is the one. All the families are going to receive blessing from Abraham. And then we read in verses 5 through 7, Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his, his brother's son, in all their possessions and all they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go into the land of Canaan. So God says, go. And it says, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I give this land. And so here's another promise. This land of Canaan, I'm giving to you, Abraham. And in Genesis 15, 5, God speaks to Abraham and says, Look to heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You're going to be a blessing to the nations, is one of the promises. Your offspring is going to be so many. It's like the stars in the sky, in the sand, in the seashore. And they're going to possess the land of Canaan. Well, Abraham's the one. He's the one that's going to bring the hope for us fallen people, so it seems. But then right away in Genesis 16, verse 1, we read this. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Why? God has promised that he'll have offspring. His wife says, well, maybe he wants you to sleep with our servant here, and maybe that's how God's going to do it. And Abraham goes with his wife's word, which are in rebellion to God's word, and Abraham seems to fail here. What is, why, why doesn't he trust God? Why does he have to go about it man's way? Well, God said this, so I must have to work it according to man's wisdom. And then in Genesis 17, 15, 
we read, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. I will bless her, and moreover, I'll give a son by her. I will bless her, and she'll become nations. Kings of people shall come for her. Remember that. From Sarah's womb, kings are coming. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed to himself and said, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. His son by Hagar, Ishmael, he says, Oh, do it our way. He's 11, 12 years old now. We want him. We want the promise to come through him. But God is showing, I am the savior of the world, not man, not man scheming. Sarah is going to have a son. It's going to happen through her womb. That's where the blessing is going to come. Are you seeing the weave of the blessing all the way from Genesis is still weaving, even though these apparent saviors continue to fall short. And then we end up with Abraham's descendants, in a sense, become many like God said they would, but they end up in slavery in Egypt, and it looks like God's plan is going to fail. You know, God has already saved Israel through Joseph, saved Jacob and his family through the famine, but then they end up in Egypt in slavery. 400 years, this promise looks like it's going to die. But then... He brings about Moses. We don't have time to spend a ton of time on Moses. But God tells Moses in Exodus 6, 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Oh, so Moses is going to be the one that carries this plan on and as you know Moses is the one that was God's chosen instrument to redeem them from slavery it's interesting in Deuteronomy 17 14 this is how God spoke through Moses we, we get this promise or this statement, when you come to the land that the Lord God is giving to you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I'll set a king over me. So he's prophesying. When you come into this land that I'm going to give you and you settle in it and you say, I'm going to set up a king like the nations in that land. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord God will choose. 
So way back through Moses, God is saying, you will have a king, but it's not going to be the one whom you choose. It's going to be the one whom I choose. And you know Moses ends up what? Not entering the land. He doesn't follow God's command to speak to the rock. Rather, he strikes the rock with his rod. That's what he did the first time God asked him to strike the rock at Meribah. The second time he says, speak to the rock, he doesn't listen carefully to God's command. And God says, because you did that, Moses, you will not bring my people into the land of Canaan. And Moses falls short. This great leader didn't listen to every word the Lord God had commanded him. And he falls short. But God chooses Joshua to bring him into Canaan and to defeat the enemies. Well, Joshua's the one. His name means Savior. Surely this is the one. It's got to be Joshua. We read in Judges 17.5 that and the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod in household gods and ordained one of his sons who became a priest in those days. There was no king in Israel. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So Joshua conquers the enemies in Canaan. They come to settle, and two-thirds of the promises of Abraham seem to be fulfilled. It seems like everything is going good. Israel has so many people they're almost uncountable. They're in the land. Those are two of the promises. But the third promise is they will be a blessing to the nations. And as you know, Israel in Canaan is ruled then by these judges. This is the book of Judges. And you have some judges that seem pretty good and things are going good. But then you have others that aren't so good. In general, you, you seem to have this train wreck in the land, in Canaan, and God's promises seem to be failing because they're anything but a blessing to the nations. Because four times throughout Judges, we read this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18.1, Judges 19.1. This is how the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Joshua brought us here, but we're not only not a blessing, we don't even care what God's word says. You just have this weird statement. There was no king in Israel. There is no king in Israel. There is no king in Israel. And that brings us up to the book of Ruth. And you know that story, how this Moabite woman goes with Naomi and ends up marrying Boaz. R Ruth ends up marrying Boaz. And at the end of the book of Ruth, in Ruth 
4.21, we get this genealogy because they have children. It says, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz, through Ruth, fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Dominion in the garden. There's a king we should be looking for in the garden that Adam failed. Noah fails like Adam fails. Abraham tries to do it man's way and ultimately doesn't seem like he's going to be the Savior. Israelites end up in Egypt in slavery. Moses brings them out. We have hints of the, you know, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. Deuteronomy, we have a promise of a king that's coming through judges. They're in Canaan. They're in the land. Things aren't going well, though. This isn't how they pictured it. Joshua doesn't seem like the Savior, even though his name means Savior. But Ruth bears a son, Obed, that fathers Jesse, who fathers David. And our rock lands into the context of 1 Samuel. And if you think we got there by random happenstance, you haven't understood your Bible. You haven't been following these promises and letdowns. The Old Testament is crying out for Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is crying out for somebody, somebody who's a king. For kings are coming from Abraham. A king will rule over Israel. And we end up in the book of 1 Samuel. And in the rest of our time, I want to say some introductory things about 1 and 2 Samuel. And then I want to end with this prayer of Hannah that we'll look at in more detail when we get to chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. First of all, 1 and 2 Samuel were always one book. They come together, and they've been divided, but they're not supposed to be divided. There isn't a good break at the end of 1 Samuel, and then like there was another writing that brought about 2 Samuel. Uh, some believe that Joshua, Judges, Samuel, the Samuels, and the Kings were all written by the same author. Uh, others say Kings were wasn't written by the same author. That was written a little later. What we do know is that the human author of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel was after the divided kingdom. So if you look at your sheet here, you'll see if you follow this line, in the United Kingdom, we're going to see Israel not kind of generally in Canaan with judges, but not really unified. 
we see them unified in the person of Saul first and especially David. You have the unified kingdom. And you know what happens is Solomon takes the throne. He doesn't obey Deuteronomy 17, the text we read, that kings were not supposed to gather wealth and marry many wives. And what we see, it looks like David's kingdom is going to flourish, but all of a sudden it divides Judah in the south, Israel to the north. And then Israel is just flat out destroyed by the Assyrians in 721. But Judah lives on and is taken into Babylonian exile uh, in 587 B.C. And so just so you can kind of get this straight in your mind and they end up entering back into the land, building the temple, and then there's a pro- Israel's without a prophet for 400 years until John the Baptist begins to speak. So if you can just have that general timeline in your mind, First and Second Samuel, if you look at the dates there, you can see uh, they happen over the course of 135 years. History unfolds here over that time frame. Uh, we know that Samuel's written after the divided kingdom because in 1 Samuel 27, 6, we read, So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So we know there's already kings in Judah. The separation has happened. We don't know who the human author of 1 Samuel is. Um, So that is hopefully kind of sets the context, sets the stage uh, for our study here. The reason why I chose 1 Samuel 2 this morning and want to run through this for about uh, seven, eight minutes is because almost every commentator recognizes that Hannah's prayer at the beginning of 1 Samuel and David's song at the end of 2 Samuel are two bookends that in a sense describe what happens in these books. And so one of the best interpretive guides we have is Hannah's prayer, which is a prophetic prayer, and David's song at the end of 2 Samuel. And I think it'll be helpful just as we think about starting next week in verse 1. Well, well, what's the trajectory of these books? What, what is God doing? What is going to happen? What are we going to find out about God? And so let's just look at 1 Samuel 2, 1. Let's look at Hannah's prayer. You might not even know who Hannah is right now. She's El, Elkanah's wife. He has two wives. This is the barren one. And she finally 
is going to give birth to a son. And we read, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. God is doing this work. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our rock. What you're going to find out in First and Second Samuel, God is holy. We're going to see examples of His holiness. We're going to see examples that there is no God like our God. The bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble bind on strength. I'm sorry, skip verse 3. She says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not ignorance come from your mouth, for the Lord is, the, is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, the feeble bind on strength. So you get this juxtaposition. The mighty are broken by God. The feeble are given strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Those who are rich are going to become poor. The poor are going to become rich. The barren has borne seven, but she has, who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor. The Lord, ma the Lord makes rich. He brings low and exalts God. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful one, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. You want to see this, the strong and the mighty? Look at Saul. You want to see the good looking? You want to see the one who has it all together? Look at Saul. You want to see a man go according to man's wisdom? Look at Saul. But what you're going to find is God brings him low and he chooses someone like Little old David, not even important enough to bring along. And God says, I'm going to get glory in this salvation. I'm going to raise up the poor. See, we'll see this theme all throughout. God is holy. There's none like him. Our only hope is in the Lord. Verse 10 says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. In David's song, we're going to hear all these same sorts of terms. The humble are going to be raised up. The proud are going to be brought down. God's going to thunder against the wicked. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. This is a prophecy. Hannah says, he will give strength to his king. Hannah is going to give birth to Saul, Artus. Samuel, that's going to anoint the first king of Israel and God's king. And that king is going to judge the world. 
you all know that the king ends up to be King Christ. David's throne that will last forever, lasts forever through his offspring, which is Jesus Christ. You read the last book in your Bible, Revelation, and what you find is a king. What you find is a judge. What you find is a king who destroys the wicked and raises up the humble, raises up the needy, and raises up the righteous. Revelation 19.11 pictures this king. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on the horse is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And throughout this Bible, there's a weaving, there's a waiting. Where's the Adam that's going to image God perfectly? Where's the Abraham that's not going to count on man, but in, in, in scheme man's way? but only trust in God's way? Where's the Moses that listens carefully to God's commands and only does what God commands? That's what the Gospels are saying all throughout. Jesus is saying, I don't speak on my own authority. I do everything the Father tells me. I'm the perfect son. I'm the perfect king who comes to rule on behalf of the king of the universe. The story ends with Jesus on his throne in First and Second Samuel. Is this, in a sense, plop that launches us to God's king, David's descendant. My prayer is that you will truly believe you'll see a king, that you'll stand before a king one day, that you won't just waltz before the holiness of God and say, I think I was good enough. I hope as we study 1 Samuel, you, you find out that God is a holy God. We need a perfect one who's lived the life we could never live in our place so that when that perfect king comes to judge, he happens to be Yeshua. That's Aramaic for Joshua, the true Savior, so that the judge of the universe is the one who bled and died for us, so that we could be the army in white linen coming behind the God who has King of Kings tattooed to his thighs and blood dripping off his robe and a sword ready to strike down the wicked. Your only hope and my only hope is if we trust 
in the one in whom the whole Old Testament is screaming for, a perfect Savior who died and bled, lived a life we could never live so that when we trust in him by faith, his righteousness is given to you so that when God judges the righteous, he'll receive you into heaven because you have his. Father, I pray that no one here would be so proud to challenge God on judgment day. Hannah's prayer is true. You'll strike down the proud. You'll raise up the humble. Help all of us be humble so that we look for your King, your Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we trust in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.